This is Matt. I'm the lead pastor at Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. My prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, If we can connect you with a local church or discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info at discoverwbc.com. Good morning, church family. It's a great week to be alive, right? Passion Week starts, Holy Week, just a, just a great time to be uh, together as a church family. So um, I try to always be open, honest, and vulnerable to the point of sometimes being maybe too honest. Matt and the staff could probably tell you that. Uh, whoa, hey now, hey now. Um, as I prepared for this week, this sermon, um, I probably never had a sermon that brought me to tears a couple times. Uh, I'm not saying it will for you, but for me it did, because I really started to really dive into this idea, and this is kind of our main point for today. If I've ever doubted if Jesus loves me, you can just stop and look at what took place on Passion Week. So I would say the same to you all, that I know you're probably... look. People walk in the room all the time with many things going on. I'm sure you're going through something. You're probably doubting God's goodness in your life. Probably where is He? Where are you working, Lord? But I will make it clear, if you just look at Passion Week alone, it is absolutely, utterly clear that God loves you. So, so often we preach, Matt and I were talking about this um, in preparation for this. I said, you know, so often people preach just on Palm Sunday, and then we move to Good Friday, and then we move into Saturday, and we just don't look at what happens Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So the chart that's above me, there will be a test on this later. Just kidding. I hate tests. Uh, I don't even like eye tests. That's how much I hate tests. Um, so this came from Bible Gateway, and this is an actual look at what took, took place from Sunday to Sunday, and all the different colors are the different players, Jesus, the disciples, Jewish leaders, okay? But for us, we're going to narrow it down for the next slide, and we're just going to look at Monday through Thursday. So if you can go to that next slide for me. There you go. But let me make it clear for the pastors in the room they would tell you, well, this is probably 14 sermons right here. So we're going to try to do that in about 35, 40 minutes. Um, We're going to do our best. But we're mainly going to focus on Scripture. So generally, when we look at Scripture, we tend to look at it, we're going to say vertically, meaning we read read Matthew, then we read Mark, we Luke, John, and so forth. Where today, we're going to be trying to look at all of the Gospels at one time. We're going to be reading Matthew, then we might go over and read some from Luke, read some from Mark. So what I have done, instead of me flipping through my Bible and driving everybody nuts as I find the passages, I've just printed them all up on on a sheet of paper. So um, we're going to start there. So if you are wondering the importance of Holy Week, I'm going to give you some stats. I love a good stat. So in Matthew, 30% of Matthew is devoted to Passion Week. In Mark and John, 
40% of their gospel is focused on Passion Week. And Luke, being he's a little more detailed, okay, he's about 24%. And lastly, the events that are at the center of Passion Week are what explode the church as we see in Acts 2 through 3 and then in 1 Corinthians 15. So we're going to bounce around. Might even give you a little bit of a break so you can find that passage. But hopefully we'll have all the, all the Scripture for you on the board. So before Sunday takes place, I think it's important to look back and find out what's going on on Saturday. So on Saturday, Jesus goes and stays in Bethany. And this was the first time that he had been back in that area since Lazarus had died. And the other thing to keep in the back of your mind, he knew the religious leaders wanted to kill him. So if I said to all of you, we all need to go to Tony Town. <clears throat> we all need to go to Tony Town. And by the way, there's a lot of people there that want to kill us. I'm sure the crowd today would probably thin out pretty quickly. But not Jesus. He continued to keep his focus of what was going to be done. So I'm going to remind you again of this point. If you've ever doubted whether God loves you or not, it can be seen right here in Passion Week. So that Saturday, they did a special dinner for him. This is also where Mary um, anointed him with perfume. People criticized her. Why are you doing that? Jesus then said to her, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of me. Think about that humble act of what she did and how many people have told that story, preached through that passage. Hundreds of thousands, millions, just from that humble act. So after that Saturday was done, Jesus and his followers got up on Sunday morning and they proceeded to travel that couple to a few miles to Jerusalem. And that's where we're going to begin in Scripture. So for those of you that want to follow on your Bible or on your phone, it's uh, Matthew 21, 1 through 11. We're going to start there. Give you a couple seconds here if you want to turn to that. Okay, Matthew 21, 1 through 11. So when they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her foal. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that, when, so, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey in its foal, then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting down branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him, of those who followed, shouted, Hosanna! Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When we entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So what are some of our key points here? 
So first, what takes place is the fulfillment of Scripture. Zechariah 9.9 actually talks about this, and Jesus fulfills it. And the neat thing about that verse in particular is, if you go back and look at that whole passage, it's about the idea that Israel has a king coming to restore Judah. Israel had been waiting for a leader. My question to you all is, what did they think that leader was going to look like? Well, if you do some studying, what you realize is they thought they were going to get Russell Crowe from Gladiator. They thought he was going to come with a sword. He was going to overtake everything. He was going to overthrow the Roman Empire. But that's not who Jesus was, and that's not how he did it. See, typically in those days, a king would come on what they call a war horse. Again, I'm a visual guy. I picture Gladiator when Joaquin Phoenix comes in with all those people following him and people are cheering him. That's what they thought was going to happen. But look at what Jesus did. The humble servant, he came in on a donkey. A lowly donkey. No fan, no, not expecting fanfare, right? Humble servant. It's a subtle difference, folks, but it's an important difference for all of us to understand. Secondly, and we don't see this in Matthew, that's why, again, it's good to look at all the Gospels for the story. We see in Luke 19.41, it says this, As the crowds were cheering, as Jesus approached, he saw the city, and he wept for it. The crowds were cheering because they had heard of the great miracles he had done. And they thought their lives were going to be better because he would overthrow the Roman domination. Think about it. I know I would have been in that case like, it's about time, our king is here. Things are going to get better. Free milkshakes for everyone, right? But again, that's not how God intended it to be. So while the crowds were focusing on their own needs, it's safe to say that they really missed why Jesus was crying. So why was he weeping? Some people have said that he was weeping because of what was in front of him, what he knew was going to happen. I think that's a part of it. But I think Scripture makes it clear of really why he was weeping. And that's where we see in 19, Luke 19, 42 through 44, and it says this, that their days were numbered, they would be crushed by their enemies. And then he says, because you did not recognize the time when God visited to you. So generally, we give you all a couple gospel responses at the end of a sermon. I'm going to give you some things to think about after on each day. So as we finish up this day, Sunday, I'm going to challenge you with this. Are you in the crowd doing what everyone else is doing, acting the way they are? And is your focus on Jesus and responding the way he is? Which are you? Are you focusing on your own needs or are you focusing on the way Christ uh, is responding? Tragically, and I'm going to put my hand up there with all of you, tragically, we tend to go along with the crowd. Maybe it's out of comfort. Maybe it's not wanting to rock the boat. Maybe it's out of confrontation. I've yet to preach a sermon where I talk about confrontation and everybody's like, yeah, I love confrontation. I must admit, I have been cheering 
at times in that crowd for my own selfish needs. I don't want to be that way, but at times I am. Church family, just like Jesus, we need to be weeping for the lost, the broken, and those who have lost their way. And I think there's one other piece to this, and I just want you to think about it. Scripture teaches us that we need to lift God's name on high. We need to bring Him praise. But I personally think at this moment, I don't think Jesus was looking for praise when He got there. He was looking for followers. He was looking for people who would follow His teachings and act the way He was acting. Something to think about. So that brings us to Monday. Sunday's over. Monday begins. And one of my commentaries said, said it this way, and I, I thought it was great. So he said, on Monday, if Jerusalem was a beehive with his triumphal entry, Jesus had now hit it with a stick. You could hear the buzz grow as the anger within got organized. Monday was all about Jesus declaring his kingly authority over all. And the other thing to remember is Jesus was now a marked man. So Matthew 21, 12 through 22. Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned tables of money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of, of David. They had said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, yes, have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. Then he left them, went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. So early in the morning as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said, May no fruit ever come from you again. At once the fig tree withered. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed and said, How did the fig tree wither so quickly? Jesus answered them, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it would be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. So we're going to look at the fig tree first. Because, again, I'm sure there's maybe multiple people in this room that maybe have never read the full account of what takes place. So the fig tree is, is important because Israel is often characterized as a fig tree in the Old Testament. Now, if you want to do some further reading, you can look in Jeremiah 8, Hosea 9, and Joel 1 for all of that. But multiple other places, but specifically those three places. Jesus' cursing the fig tree symbolizes the judgment of God upon a nation that has the outward appearance of life, but shows no fruit. Mark Strauss said in his commentary, this is not a fit of, of temper against an innocent tree, but an object lesson for the benefit of his disciples. Some debate, is the fig tree Israel? Or specifically the uh, Jewish religious leaders? 
Some argue both sides. I would actually say yes. I think it's both. Also, some see this as Jesus rejecting Israel, which I believe is not clear. So again, take some time on your own this week. Do a little more studying. But specifically with that, how we know that Jesus is not rejecting Israel is because we see um, Messianic Jews, people coming to faith and so forth. Okay? So here's why we make mistakes as students of the Bible. Let's not try to figure out all the small stuff, but let's kind of remember always the big picture. I believe Jesus used this time, this, the fig tree specifically, to teach his disciples and to, and to teach us. See, he saw that tree had leaves on it at Passover and compared it to the Jews. This is important. A tree in full leaf bloom at Passover is making a promise it cannot fulfill. So too did Israel. Simply put, Jesus had found a lot of leaves but no fruit. Secondly, we see the cleansing of the temple. The temple of Jerusalem was one of the largest and most amazing temples in the world. It occupied 170,000 square yards. That is slightly bigger than my backyard. Kidding. Think of how big that is. Massive. As Jesus entered Jerusalem, he knew where and what he had to do, most likely because of what he saw the night before. One writer said that he wasn't having a temper tantrum, but he was having a temple tantrum. There's my dad joke for the day for you. Now, look, the commentary, uh, the person writing it, went on to say, Jesus was not showing that he was violent. What he was showing was that he was not passive. Let me say that to you again. He was not showing that he was violent. He was showing us that he was not passive. He was expressing righteous anger as he disrupted those who were buying and selling. Then we see this in this passage, this idea that Jesus must die. That's what the rulers were saying. Jesus was directly challenging every Jewish leader and their leadership. And as leaders, they were getting angrier and angrier, especially because the crowds were loving him more and more. Think of how that worked for them. They just got angrier and angrier as the crowd started to be connected more and more to what he was saying. Jesus was shaking things up and the leaders were getting very, very nervous. So here is my challenge to us on Monday. Are you like the fig tree? Do you appear to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Have an outward appearance of life like the leaves on the tree, but you show no fruit? Something to think about. I found myself even thinking that. Boy, Lord, I hope there's not a lot of leaves that aren't showing fruit. Lastly, and this is something to think about also, think about those Jewish leaders. What activity or attitude do you have that gets in the way of God's purpose for you and what he wants to accomplish in and through you at this church? We don't want to look like the Jewish leaders, do we? But at times, I know we do. So Tuesday, moving on to Tuesday. Tuesday is all about Jesus' teaching. And the other part is, it's all about the Jewish leaders figuring out how we're going to get rid of them. 
So let's start in Mark 11, 20 through 26. Give you a couple seconds there to turn to that if you'd like. So again, that's Mark 11, 20 through 26. So it says, early in the morning as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered up from the roots. Then Peter remembered and said to them, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. I'm going to stop here. You got to love Peter, right? Hey, Lord, I'm going to state the obvious here. Peter's always amazed by what Jesus, just like all of us. Like, Lord, look at what you've done. He's like, I, I know. I did that for you, right? Jesus replied to them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to the mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you. Two things take place here. One, Jesus is teaching us the importance of prayer. Now, he does not say, I'll make, we got some kids in the room, I'll make sure. Kids, you can't go home and say, I want a new bike, and Jesus is automatically going to do that. That's not what Scripture is teaching us, okay? He's also teaching us about a word that some of us struggle with, and that's forgiveness. So one of the things that I find is helping people through counseling. Probably one of the top five things that I get are people that struggle with forgiveness. And we've all struggled with it at certain times. So Jesus is bringing that, that to the forefront also, this idea of we need to be forgiving. But I really believe that his main point for us is this, is that God will do great things in response to the faith and prayers of his people. But God works on his own time. Okay? Don't forget that part. Mark eleven twenty seven through 33. It's going to help us move forward here. Then, then they came to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? As only Jesus would answer him, he answers him this way. Well, you know what? I'm going to ask you one question. Then answer me. I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. I'm sure it threw these guys off for a period of time. They discussed it among themselves, and they said, if we, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus this way, We don't know, and Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's not forget what took place on Monday. The leaders probably went to bed Monday night, ticked off. And if they had cell phones, they'd have been texting each other, Can you believe what this guy did to us? How are we going to do this? How are we going to overthrow him? They see Jesus come back on Tuesday and they confront him immediately. They were the ones that felt they had the authority. They knew the knowledge. They had the authority over the building, over the temple. And most likely they were making money on what was happening in there. 
in their eyes, Jesus had no right to do what he was doing. Now, Jesus follows up this moment, this humble moment, the way he he talked with them, but he follows it up with a series of parables, seven to eight parables. And again, I would just ask you all this week, take some time to go back into the Gospels and read some of these parables, because honestly, we don't have enough time to cover them all. But I did want to go over one parable, and that's in Mark 12, 1 through 11. So he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard for them, but they took him, beat him, sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. He, had one to, he still had one left to, to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent them to him, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, This is his heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. So for those of you that can't see every piece of this, I just want to just briefly go over this for you. So the vineyard owner is God. The vineyard itself is Israel. Israel, The son is Jesus. The destruction of the evil tenants is God's judgment on Israel and their unrighteous leaders. And giving the vineyard to the others is the extension of God's kingdom to the Gentiles. And praise the Lord for that. That's why as we see after Jesus gives them the parable, it says in verse 12, they were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Now, one last piece to all of this is what is referred to in the Gospels as the Olivet Discourse. Many sermons, many books, many passages, many papers, literature, people have preached on this for many, many years, way before me. And truthfully, we just don't have the time. But I want to give you a couple things that maybe you could work on this week. That's Matthew 24 through 25, Mark 13, and Luke 21. But let me give you some quick highlights. This comes about as Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple on Tuesday evening. And as the temples were talking about the temple and how great it was. So picture them leaving. The disciples were probably like, Man, that place was awesome. Think about your kids leaving Hershey Park, right? Man, that was the best roller coaster ever. And Jesus was like, oh, hold on, hold on. And he says this. When all of this, sorry, Jesus takes this moment for teaching and tries to explain to them the what, why, where, and how of what is taking place. So the future there, the prediction, the Olivet Discourse, and we're going to address it in a little bit, 
But Jesus prophesies that the day is fast approaching and that not one of those stones will be left upon another. So here's my challenge to you all. Um, and it really comes from it's it, two things I think are of great importance here. So one, I've heard some great debates on end times. Great debates. A lot of people have a lot of knowledge. Um, I have a little bit of knowledge. Definitely love hearing people that talk about it that have a lot of knowledge. But see, I've also heard a lot of really unhealthy arguing about this kind of stuff. I have actually seen a church split because of it. I've seen division happen in the church, and I've seen a lot of hurt and pain. We all need to be careful, all of us need to be careful that we are talking as authorities about specifically about this, about the end times. And the verse that I always go back to is Matthew 24, 36, which teaches us, Now concerning the day and hour no one knows, neither the angels of heaven, not the Son, uh, not even the Son, except the Father alone. Let's be careful, folks, when we talk about this stuff, that we are not coming across as an authority and really above someone else. Think about how Jesus came in. He came in on a donkey, humble servant. We need to be the same way. And secondly, I believe the reason Jesus took the time to actually do this is I think he's really trying to encourage his disciples and us, encourage us to hold fast, to stay strong. And that word that we all hate, wait on him, right? We all hate that word, but to wait on him until he comes back. Okay, so let's move on to Wednesday. Wednesday, we could say, is the quiet before the storm. This is short. Not, not a lot of stuff in Scripture tells us what happens. That does not mean a lot of things were not happening. But there's just not a lot of things. But we're going to look at two small passages. So first, Luke 21, 37 through 38 says this. During the day he was teaching in the temple, but in the evening he would go out and spend the night on what is called the Mount of Olives. Then all the people would come early in the morning to hear him in the temple. Jesus knew what was going on behind his back, but he didn't lose focus. He continued to teach. Meanwhile, the Sanhedrin were finding themselves more and more angry and concerned. So Mark 14, 1 through 2 says this, It was two days before the Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. They were gathering together to brainstorm how to take Jesus down. They wanted to wait till the crowds dispersed. Their mind was made up, but it, and that's what leads us into Thursday. But before we get to Thursday, I think there's one challenge to us, and that is this. Who here at times feels opposition and interference when you're trying to carry out what God wants done? Right? I know I do. I feel like the enemy puts up hurdles, sometimes even... Other believers put up hurdles at times. Jesus stayed the course. I can easily get distracted. Squirrel, right? Little, little that. Jesus didn't. He knew what was in front of him, and he continued to preach and teach. Folks, I'm going to remind you again of our central point. If you are questioning whether God loves you, 
He did not get distracted from what he was called to do. I want to encourage all of us to keep our focus on what needs to be done. So let's move to the last day, and that is Thursday. The end is near for Jesus. So this was the phrase that I got out of the commentary that really it brought tears to my eyes. And I want you to think about this. When Jesus woke up Thursday morning, he would likely not close his eyes again in sleep until he closed them in death on Friday afternoon. Think about that. He knew people were plotting to kill him. He knew Judas would betray him. Peter would deny him. After the Last Supper, the disciples sat around arguing, who's the greatest? They even fell asleep in the garden when he asked them not to. When Jesus was taken away, he was beaten and mocked. And he still accomplished so much on that day. I think about me with just even a little bit of struggle with anxiousness at times. I'd have been curled up in a ball and over in the corner. If somebody told me I was dying tomorrow, I don't don't know how I would react. But not Jesus, man. He just stayed on point. He knew what needed to get done. And more importantly, or I should say an added importance, before the Last Supper, the humble servant washed the feet of the disciples. I mean, just let that sink in. If that does not show you how much he loves you, I mean, it's, to me, it's, it's very obvious to me. But I also know to others it might not be walking in here. I get it. Because most of us know the importance of the last meal. We're going to skip that. And what we're really going to look at to, to end what we have left is we're going to look at what it looked like for them in the garden. So we're going to look at two things. So Luke twenty-two thirty-nine 39 through 46. I'm going to read that for you, and we'll get through that. He went out and made his usual way, uh, and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away, knelt down, and began to pray. And this is what Jesus said, Father... If you are willing to take this cup away from me, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. He said, Father, if you are willing to take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew what was about to happen as we can see throughout his ministry on earth because he refers back to the cup. He does. He talks about the cup all the time. He knew what was in store. This is a key, folks. I think this is really important to understand because I think some people would say, I've, I've, pardon me, I've heard people say that Jesus was really kind of denying what was going to happen. I don't think that's the case. Jesus was not denying what needed to happen. Instead, he gives us a beautiful example of being vulnerable in our prayer life. He's saying to the Father, not my will, but yours, right? Dr. Cook said in his book, 
Jesus' submission to the Father's will was not words spoken by an ivory tower theologian, but the words of one who prayed with profound conviction that God's will is always best. I think back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he says, your will be done, right? Here's my question. Do we really want God's will to be done in our lives? I think it's sometimes we would rather pray, hey Lord, my will be done, please. Your will scares me. Your will is going to make me uncomfortable, right? After Jesus prays, these two things happen. First, God sends him strength to carry out his will. Think about that. He was tired. He was broken. He knew what was in front of him. He sends an angel to strengthen him. Second, the disciples let him down. How quickly we lose our focus. Some of you might be thinking, I wouldn't have fallen asleep. I would have. I'd have been praying going, I don't know what else to pray for. Right? I would have. I hate to admit that, but we're such broken people at times. He still went to the cross knowing that they would fall asleep. Again, really great, great moment to be thinking about that. Jesus then sees that somebody has their ear cut off. He touches the ear and the ear heals. Think about if you were in the mob. Put yourself in the mob and you're coming to get the supposed as they, they believe he might be the savior. Man, if somebody touched, Alan, if somebody touched your ear and it healed right in front of you, I'd be like, oh man, I'm going after the wrong guy. Right? Last thing. Peter denies Jesus. Luke 22, 54 through 62. So they seized him, led him away, and brought him into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. They lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard, and they sat down together. And Peter sat among them. When a servant saw him in the light and looked closely at him, she said, this was the man. This, this man was with him too. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. After a little while, someone else saw him and said, you're, you're one of them too. Man, I'm not. I am not, Peter said. About an hour later, another kept insisting this man was certainly with him since he's also a Galilean. Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm sure at this point, Peter was like, man, will people just leave me alone? Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the words of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Folks, how many here has had multiple Peter moments in their lives, right? My wife, if she were here, she could tell you, I, I just have a heart for going up to people I don't know, sharing the gospel, loving on them. My wife, being an introvert, cringes sometimes. She's like, oh my gosh, here we go. Folks, I've had some wonderful victories because of what Jesus has done in and through me. But I've had some horrendous, horrendous failures. But he still loved me enough to go to the cross for me. 
It's not our victories or our failures that made him go there, right? It's not a works-based faith, folks. We are just called to do what God's called us to do. And at times, we're going to do well. And at times, we're going to fail. But folks, one of the things I think that's important to do since we're in community together is to share those failures with each other so we realize we're all going through it, but it's really good to share those victories with others. Jesus was then taken, mocked, and beaten. So this is where our story ends. Matt will pick it back up for us on Good Friday and then obviously on Resurrection Sunday. But I think it's so important this week because honestly, I mean, I just scratched the surface. Go home, read through the rest of this. So let me give you a couple reminders of our takeaways for you and then I'm going to wrap it up for us. I gave you all questions as we went through the story, but the greatest takeaway again is this. If you are questioning God's love for you, Stop what you're doing and read the account of Holy Week. Even just the account of Holy Week. I want to leave you with this verse. John 15, 13. No one has greater love than this to lay down their life for his friends. If you are in this room and don't know the Jesus that I'm talking about for the last 40 minutes, please come up and ask me. Ask one of the other pastors. But truthfully, folks, turn to the person beside you. They would love to share with you their story of how Jesus has just invaded their life. And this is my last thing for you all to think about. And I'd love for, this to, for you to be thinking about this this week. If you had a week left to live, if you had one week left to live, how would you live it? Would you live it in the flesh or would you live it like Christ? Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you that uh, your word is abundantly clear, Lord, that you love us. I remember Dr. Crabb once said that it is the greatest love story ever written. Father, I know there's people that are sitting in these pews, in these seats right now that are wondering and are doubting you, Father. Father, would you invade their life and help them to realize how much you love them, Father? And would they also take the time this week to dive into Scripture and just see how this amazing love letter unfolds to us, Lord? Father, we thank you for sending your Son. We thank you for what he did on the cross. And we thank you that he sits right beside you right now, Father. Thank you, Father. We love you, and we lift this up to you in your holy, precious name. Amen. you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after Jesus, uh, please contact us, and we would love to talk more about your relationship with Christ and how you can grow in your spiritual journey.